Es mejor llegar tarde a casa que nunca volver a llegar. Es mejor llegar tarde al trabajo que nunca volver a trabajar. Y es mejor recoger tarde a tus hijos que nunca volver a recogerlos. Llegar tarde a donde vayas por esperar a que pase el tren es mucho mejor que arriesgar tu vida tratando de ganarle el paso. Por algo existe el dicho, más vale tarde que nunca. Alto, el tren no para. Mensaje de Nitzel. Introducing the SD Podcast Channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 36. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And we are in the heart of the NFL playoffs as we've gotten into the divisional round and a lot to talk about from that first round of the playoffs. Jose you got to be excited as this playoff series and keeps going on. Yeah, I mean, it's wild card weekend and, you know, wild pun intended, I guess, because, man, I mean, these games were so close. Um, you know, you've had teams that looked like they were out of it and then teams like the Ravens, for example, to try and almost make a comeback. And then you had great, you know, a great clash of defense in the Bears-Eagles game and it came down to a missed field goal. I mean, this weekend pretty much had everything, every possible scenario that could have happened almost felt like it did happen this past weekend. So it was pretty wild and pretty entertaining. And, I, I you know, the next round is going to have a, a tough act to follow after Wild Card Weekend. You know, one of the things that was interesting is, for like, I think the last, since the Ravens 49ers Super Bowl, both teams to get to the Super Bowl have oh, never had a road win since then. Uh that was the complete opposite in the wild card weekend because we saw three teams pick up the road wins. Only Dallas, who was seven and one at home going into the postseason, uh, was able to hold off the Seahawks as they were trying to make a comeback late in that game. Do you think that will last? Do you see like there being a chance? Like, and that doesn't mean every one seed that would just result in like if the one seed was eliminated, the two seed then had home field advantage come the championship round and was able to get into the Super Bowl at that point, but do you see this is going to be more of a team that getting to the Super Bowl are going to be required to win on the road? Well, I mean, a lot of them are going to have to, obviously, because, you know, the path goes to, as you said, the one in two seeds, and a lot of these teams that are the one in two seeds have done really well at home this year, so I think it could really go either way. I think you have some good teams that know how to defend their home turf, like the Patriots, like the Saints, but then you also have these teams like the Colts and the Eagles who are very hungry, and as they're six seeds, you know, they're, they're not going to get any home games, so everything has to be done on the road. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see you know, how this plays out. Before we get into our first game of, obviously, the divisional round, uh, let's go one more step back of the wild card weekend. Who is your biggest disappointment? from the wild card weekend. Obviously, we're talking about losses because the four teams that won, they can't be that disappointed. No, my biggest disappointment has to be the Houston Texans. You know, uh, you, you can't, you just can't make this up. They cannot make it out of the first round 
no matter how hard they try. I mean, this is a team that started 0-3 and then won, what, their next 11 straight games or 10 straight games? I mean, there is no excuse why this team, you know, granted, you know, you give the Colts credit. The Colts showed up to play. The Colts had a great game plan. But if you're the Houston Texans, you you, you have to be kidding me that you cannot get out of a first-round playoffs, especially when, one, J.J. Watt was healthy. You know, DeAndre Hopkins hadn't dropped the pass going into this game, although Hopkins was playing hurt. I understand they still had some injuries on their receiving side, too, for Houston. But, you know, this is the same script every single year. Houston Texans are good enough in the regular season, and then they fall short in the playoffs. You know, they bring in Tyron Matthew this year. You know, this is Deshaun Watson's first time in the playoffs since he got hurt last year. And honestly, you know, this is becoming a Cincinnati Bengal, you know, you know, similarity where they make the playoffs every single year because they're good enough to, but then they fall on their face in the first round. And, you know, I'm looking at Bill O'Brien here, and I think, you know, the Bengals made a mistake by letting Marvin Lewis get too comfortable for 16 years and not get fired. If I'm the Houston Texans, Bill O'Brien has to start winning playoff games because making the playoffs, yeah, that's nice, but you have to start moving forward and actually winning if you want to get anywhere. Making the playoffs is cool and it's fun for certain fan bases, but, you know, the Texans are in year in and year out you got to start putting some wins together in the playoffs. So I'm going to take one that just missed the winning game. All they had to do was hit a field goal, and that's the Chicago Bears. And I think they had the perfect ending to this wild card weekend of just, I'm watching that game. It comes down to the final field goal. A great kickoff return by Tariq Cohen sets them up into field goal range pretty early on after the great catch and great throw by Mitchell Trubisky. And a 43-yard field goal is all they need. They even iced the kicker, and, and it kind of made me think of those like Pepsi commercials of trying to ice the kicker because it doesn't really work. That in that factor, it actually did, and that to me is the most disappointing loss. Uh, and this disappointing team because I think out of all the teams that have lost this weekend, the best team I had the best chance of getting to the Super Bowl out of those teams had to be the Chicago Bears. They were the three seed going in. They had the number one defense. They didn't have to do too much in this game. And you again, you lose to Nick Foles. I don't get the madness of Nick Foles winning these consistent games when it comes to the game being on the line. Uh, but all in all, the Bears blew it in every possible way. They couldn't stop a fourth down conversion when the, the two-yard touchdown catch from Golden Tate. They can't get the field at the very end of the game. The offense never got going in this game at all, only scoring one touchdown. And I get it, the Eagles have a good defense, but you got to do better at home, especially that run game. Just didn't seem like it was there. Uh, Chicago, you know, the fans should be disappointed immensely because there should have been more into the series. They should have been going further into the playoffs. They should be the ones facing the Los Angeles Rams in Los Angeles where the Cowboys should be going to New Orleans instead. It's the Eagles going on in the playoffs, and I feel like we keep saying this every single year lately. Uh, but, yeah, I'm going to take the Bears on that. Uh, with that being said, let's jump into the first game of the playoffs of next week. And in the divisional round, that is the Indianapolis Colts getting the first game again, and they're playing the Kansas City Chiefs. And, Jose, you were just talking about the Tetsons. Well, I mean, the Colts seem to do everything right in that football game from the start. And if the Colts are playing like that again, it's going to be tough to beat the Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's hard to call the 
you know, it's kind of it's very easy to diss the Texans, but you can't ignore what the Colts did. And not in any in no way possible am I trying to take away credit from the Indianapolis Colts because they played really well. Their run game was unstoppable. And can you imagine that when if you're the Texans, you're thinking, okay, we gotta shut down Andrew Luck. If we can contain Andrew Luck, if we can shut down this awesome quarterback, we're gonna have a good chance to win this game. And no, they didn't have a good chance to win the game because the offense was incredible. They had a great run game from the start. And I feel like that was a great game plan by the Colts to establish that run game. That way you're not just relying on Andrew Luck and his receivers. T.Y. Hilton looked really good. Ebron was very well in this game, too. And also, how impressive was the offensive line? You know, the rookie Quentin Nelson was matched up against J.J. Watt numerous times. He was matched up against Javernus Clowney numerous times. And this kid held his own. He made this AP, you know, all-pro team for a reason. And... I think he's one of the biggest upgrades the Colts have made in the draft, and honestly, in in recent years, too, is getting a good offensive line. The numbers don't lie. Andrew Luck was getting sacked left and right years before. Now they have a very strong offensive line, and if you have that that strong of an offensive line and you have a fantastic quarterback like Andrew Luck, you're going to be dangerous. Yeah, it it really looked like one of the big things for me. T.Y. Hilton looked healthy. We had really seen T.Y. Hilton look healthy. He did not at all during the Tennessee Titans game week 17. So for him to come out against the Tetsons and whether he was just biting the bullet and not showing it, not not seeming slow at foot uh, when the beginning of the snap occurred, because that certainly seemed like every possession against the Tennessee Titans. Uh, he made some brilliant catches out on the field. And, and Andrew Luck, he made some really tough throws. And when you're getting those kind of yards, you're getting those kind of first downs. Uh, we saw it early on in the very beginning of the game. We saw a big play by the Indianapolis Colts. They're able to get it very close to the red zone and score a touchdown on the opening drive. The Tennessee, tie, uh, sorry, the Houston Texans did the same exact thing. We saw a really deep pass to DeAndre Hopkins early on in the game, and it just completely missed. And it was a great defensive play. Those kind of moves are all a bit differences. And in a game where it's the Kansas City Chiefs, where they're going to give up a lot of yards, they're going to give a big play up, but they're also going to make a ton of big plays. That's what they've been doing all season long. It's going to come down to a lot of those situations, converting those big plays, being able to have the defense to stop them. And with that, I think Indianapolis has the advantage on defense. But I know you didn't like Indy in the first game, but who do you have winning this one? Well, it's funny how we mentioned about the Texans and how they can't get out of the first round. Well, I don't trust Andy Reid that much either as far as I can throw him. And Andy Reid is a heavy man. And Nick, you and I both know I can't lift very heavy to begin with. So that's going to be I don't trust the Chiefs. I love Patrick Mahomes. You know I'm a big fan of his. I think he's a fantastic quarterback. I think this is a kid that might win numerous championships. But until I see the Chiefs actually win and get out of their own way – I cannot pick them. I think the Colts are firing on all cylinders right now, and I'm a big fan of momentum too. So the Colts, to me, had a statement win last week against the Texans, even though it was against Houston, and Houston always loses in the first round. I think the Colts really made a statement, and I think people forgot, including me, because I didn't pick them last week. I think people forgot how dangerous and how good the Colts are. I feel like Andrew Luck and the Colts reminded people with that win over the Texans, and I think they roll on and they beat the Chiefs as well. I'm really liking the Colts. I had them beating the Texans. Andrew Luck in the Indianapolis Colts are the hottest team in football over the last 10, 11 weeks. That means a lot. And I was saying this earlier today. 
they sort of remind me of the New York Giants. Now, obviously with a much better quarterback, but what I'm referring to is the two Giants Super Bowls, it always seems like the Giants court momentum right before the playoffs. And a lot of times we talked about this when it comes to teams. You catch for momentum right before the playoffs compared to teams that are not really needing that momentum. Don't need to get that push to get into the playoffs because they've been in the playoffs for weeks now. They don't have that edge of going in. The Indianapolis Colts, though, are the exact opposite. They had to fight every single game going through it. They had to get to this point of like 9-1 and one in the regular season in order to make the playoffs after a 1-5 and five start. That's a difference maker. That's where your, your mindset's much different than your opponent's. And that's where they kind of remind me of the Giants. We always see them, the Giants when they won their two Super Bowls. You, you go back to like three weeks ago when they had to go and play the New York Jets in the regular season back in like I think 2011. And uh, they made the – Vince Cruz made like the 90-plus yard touchdown. And from that point on, the, the season just changed for the Giants. You go back to 2007, the Giants had to win one of their final couple of games to get into the playoffs, and they play the Patriots very close in a Week 17. It sort of just put them in that playoff mindset very be- early on, especially against the Patriots, and it just put them in the right examples going into the playoffs. That's this Colts team, in my mind, with a much better quarterback. And they could be truly dangerous compared to a team that's had to be a little bit more complacent because they've already made the playoffs for weeks on end, and all the Chiefs were doing before that was just trying to get the number one seed and trying to win the division because the Chargers kept it close all season. I really like the Colts in this one. I think they're actually able to pull off the offset as well, not just because of Andy Reid, but because of how hot this team is. Both quarterbacks are two of the best in the league. Both offenses are very explosive. But if I'm giving the edge, there's more of a run game for Indianapolis. There's a much better underrated defense with Indianapolis. And, you know, there is two very good quarterbacks, but late in the game, I'm almost going to say I trust Andrew Luck more because of the fact that he has the history and he's also been in a playoff run before. This is Patrick Mahomes' first playoff run. It's a lot different from the regular season. And this could be a team that reminds us that will be great in the regular season and then just come playoff time, fall a bit short. And that just sounds like an Andy Reid team now that I say it more and more. So I have the Colts winning this game against the Chiefs. Our other game this week on Saturday is the Dallas Cowboys versus the Los Angeles Rams, and hey, the Cowboys are able to win a playoff game. It's finally come true. It took them long enough to do so. Now the big question is, can they win two playoff games in a row? Jose, what did you see in the first in the Cowboys-Seahawks game that you really liked? Well, Dak Prescott, you know, Ezekiel Elliott said it best. Dak Prescott played like a grown man. Um, you know, the Seahawks defense did, didn't do a terrible job against Ezekiel Elliott. Um, I think you tip your cap to Dallas's defense. They shut down the running game for the Seattle Seahawks, which is not very easy to do. And, you know, two things I take away from this. This defense is young, they're talented, and they're energized. And I think, you know, don't sleep on, on, on Dallas's defense because, again, they're a young and talented squad, but they are very, very, very good. Um, two, Dak Prescott can do it on his own, too. You know, 
when it mattered most, Dak put the team on his shoulders. And, you know, this is the Dak Prescott we saw a couple of seasons ago where the Cowboys were convinced that this was their guy to move forward with and they cut ties with Tony Romo. This is the Dak Prescott that we were convinced was the next QB for the Dallas Cowboys. Last year was a down year for Prescott in his sophomore season. Last year was a down year for the Cowboys. And, you know, you said it best. You were saying how Dak Prescott didn't need to play that last game against the Giants. And in the last podcast, I said, yes, he did. Because that game against the Giants, in my opinion, is a turning point for Dak Prescott. That gave him the confidence. We talked about how Andrew Luck and the Colts, you know, you are using the season's momentum. I believe Dak Prescott is using that season's momentum to really take over and become a dual threat QB and also really put the game in his hands, knowing that the game has to go through him in order for the Cowboys to go and win and that they just don't need Zeke to run over 200 yards to win a football game. He can go out there and get it done too. Yeah. And he certainly did, you know, only one touchdown, but you don't need too much when you have guys that are running in, you know, one pass touchdown. He also had the rushing touchdown and then Elliot's having the big game and, only the fourth time in Cowboys history did they have an 100-yard receiver and a 100-yard rusher in a playoff game. That's all the right momentum you want. The defense looked very good in this game against the Seahawks. Who This is Russell Wilson. This is a prime-time NFL playoff quarterback. And for a while, they held them in check. For a while, they played very good. And one of the things that stood out to me is they were also behind. It was 14-10 to 10 going into the fourth quarter. Cowboys come from behind, getting the win, getting the lead, scoring multiple touchdowns, having the late-game touchdown with two minutes left to go, putting themselves up even further in the game by a two, uh, 10 points. That's all the spots that matter. That's, that's huge things that you look at in, in the playoffs. And this defense, are those middle linemen, those are two of the best in the NFL and probably the best two combo in the entire NFL. I got no problem saying that. I mean, I love Luke Keatley. I love Bobby Wagner, but the two of them on Dallas, it's hard to match up with anybody going well against that. This is going to be a fun game between the Rams and the Cowboys. It, It still really looks like a very great defense versus great defense and relying on the running bats. Like, What's the big X factor for you in this game? To me, it's going to be, you know, to me, it's Jared Goff. We know what the running backs can do. We know what Ezekiel Elliott is capable of. We know what Todd Gurley is capable of. Aaron Donald and the Rams, scary, scary defense. Cowboys defense, honestly, could be just as good. We had this conversation a couple weeks ago about, is Jared Goff a big game QB? Can he win that big game? He's yet to do so, right? Because in the last year in the playoffs, they didn't win. You know, Jared Goff didn't have, he wasn't terrible, but he wasn't also exactly most dominant either. The game earlier this year against the Chiefs, you know, you cut them some slack because it was a 50-50 shootout, you know, score as many points as possible, gun slinging between, you know, the Rams and the, and the Chiefs and stuff like that. But still, the Rams didn't win that game. Jared Goff didn't win the Rams that game. My question is, is we're going to find out, can Jared Goff win these big games? Because for the Rams... You know, Dallas is a hot team right now. You know, you have Dallas coming in here. They're going to be a problem. Ezekiel Elliott's going to be a problem. Todd Gurley may not be able to, you know, to, to run through this Rams defense. So that so then what happens, you know? So then you know the Dallas defense is going to try and stack the box 
against Todd Gurley, which is going to make them a little bit more one-dimensional if he can't get anything going. If Todd Gurley can't get his offense going, it's going to come down to Jared Goff. Talented receivers all around him. You know, he still has Brandon Cooks, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup. Uh, you know, the talent is there receiving-wise. Can Jared Goff get it done when it matters most is the question. That's going to be the tough part because he didn't really show up well in the playoffs last season. He didn't, and you cut him some slack because obviously, you know, that was his first real playoff scenario. But, you know, after a while, there's no excuse for that anymore. You know, the the, the little courtesy goes away after a while. You know, ask guys like, you know, ask whoever the quarterback is in Houston. You know, ask, you know, like Drew Brees or even ask, you know, Dallas or Tony Romo. No one cares about, you know, okay, you lost your first one. But can you actually deliver when it matters most? And he has not looked good since really the bye week. So that that to me is a concern. Like we, when I was said about Indianapolis, there's a lot, obviously I'd take Andrew Luck before Jared Goff, but Jared Goff, the first half of the season was one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Was putting up fantastic numbers. He still has the same offense minus Cooper Cup, and still like with all their threats around them with all their talent around them you don't really miss too much there when you have all the talent so that to me is a big concern how you haven't been playing that well later on the real question for me is can the Cowboys win on the road because obviously if this was in Dallas I'd immediately pick the Dallas Cowboys because of how well Dallas has been at home this season but when you put them on the road it's a it's different for Dallas. I, I think a good factor for them is they're not going into weather conditions. And I'm not going to treat them like they're New Orleans, but I am going to treat them like, you know, it's Texas. It's a warm weather area. If they were going into a Green Bay, if they were going into a New York, maybe I'd be a little bit more worried. But they're going to Los Angeles. This is going to be sunshine for them. So I don't really think that should be a big deal. On top of that, Dallas is always a fan favorite, usually wherever they go, and they're also hated wherever they go. But Los Angeles should have a lot of love for them as well. So I don't think this is going to be entirely a road game for them because of the home crowd and because they're going to travel to Los Angeles. So I I really like this matchup, and this shouldn't be too much of a road game for them that this might be the best scenario for them playing the Rams than if they were to play the Saints had uh, the Chicago Bears win. Uh, I am going to stick with Dallas. I really like Elliott. I think this is going to come down to can you stop the run? Can Aaron Donald make the big plays? Can Dak Prescott not get your team in trouble? Because turnovers could be the difference in this game. And if it's just avoiding turnovers being the difference, I think Dak Prescott can get that done and be the difference uh, maker. So I am going to give it to the Cowboys in here in beating the Rams. Jose, who do you have in this matchup? Well, we're going to agree as well, too. I have the Cowboys, too. It's basically what I mentioned earlier before. I believe that this Cowboy defense is good enough to stop Todd Gurley. The question is, how is Jared Goff going to respond? If Todd Gurley can't get it going, I can't say that I trust Jared Goff until I see it. Um, again, I'm willing to cut him some slack earlier in the year against the Chiefs because that was just a, a wild West gunslinging throw the football around. But when it's all said and done, you got to come up in the big moment. And Jared Goff, to me, 
we've debated many times on this podcast, is he a big game quarterback? He's going to have to prove it to me um, on Saturday. But I do have the Cowboys uh, winning this game. I think momentum is on their side. Dak Prescott looks scary after these past two games he's had. I think he's going to have another huge game against the Rams. So this is a little bit different. After the last podcast, we didn't agree on each any of our teams that we were taking until we got to Chicago Bears. And, of course, they would lose at that point because we agreed. Right, uh, of course. Yeah, as expected. Uh, but we've kicked it off already with having the same two teams. Uh, Winning the games, and we're we're both going with a little bit of an upset here in Dallas, but I don't I don't think they necessarily should be considered too much of an underdog. Yeah, on paper it'll be an upset, but it's really not an upset, honestly. That to me, I think, is the same feel for like Indianapolis and Houston was considered a very close matchup. I I think the big upset when you uh, was obviously the Eagles beating the Chicago Bears, but. And even that wasn't that much of an upset because it's not, it's not like the Eagles couldn't get it done. Yeah, it's, um, again, like the Chargers, they're 7-1 and one when they were going on the road. They're versing Baltimore. It's a, a rookie quarterback who the Chargers defense is much improved and has seen this quarterback play before because they played, played each other once before. That all, to me, is a huge factor. And, and that, to me, is a difference maker when it comes to these close games. So... Again, I don't view that as too far of an upset, and I know on paper on the spread they're getting, I think, 7.5 points. I think that's very high. I think that's relying on the fact that the Rams' offense can be what the Rams' offense was earlier in the season against a strong Dallas defense. So it's it's a real risk play, I think, t- giving up the points if you're taking the Rams. And with that, we go into the Sunday games. And the team that's always there. It's Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, always hosting the game. Never the road Who? team. I, I've never, I've never heard of that. Never, never I, heard, I don't know what you're talking about. Never name. heard of the goat and the goat. Uh, versus the Los Angeles Chargers, who were able to pull off the win. Uh, just completely dominated the Ravens till the very end, where the Ravens were able to slow, really get almost into a comeback, uh, and almost came back fully in that game. Philip Rivers has never beaten Tom Brady in his career. It's the second week in a row he's traveling. The Chargers are traveling to East Coast. They had to play in Baltimore. Now they have to play in New England. But the Chargers are 8-1 and one on the road this season. They've done it all over the place. New England, if they were the road team, I wouldn't even give them a chance against anyone the way they played on the road. But we're in talking about in New England, in Foxborough, what's the biggest, who, who other than the quarterbacks, because obviously I would say Tom, and, and other than the coach, <laughs> because we can easily pick Tom Brady, we can easily pick Bill Belichick, I don't want you doing that. Give me somebody else that has to be the difference maker. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's the entire... San Diego Chargers, San Diego Chargers. Do you hear me? The Los Angeles Chargers. Dollar uh, in the, it's like the dollar in the swear jar. You said San Diego. What are we, what are we up to now? I, I think we have enough for uh, dinner for two at IHOP at this point. But, it, you know, to me, it's not just one player. It's the defense of the Los Angeles Chargers. I mean, you talk about a team that, 
you know, this team is not a wild card team, right? I mean, they have 11 wins on the season. They're eight and one on the road. You know, they're a fantastic football team. And I will tell you right now, this is not a prediction, but if anybody can beat the Patriots in Foxborough against the GOAT and the GOAT, it could be the Los Angeles Chargers with how well they've played this year. However, Nick, although they dominated the Ravens, the ending to that game really scares me. The Ravens, who should have been dead in the water, give them credit, give Lamar Jackson credit. The Ravens shouldn't have been able to come back in a game like that. It really scares me that the Chargers took their foot off the gas pedal and let them almost tie the game. You cannot do that when you are taking on the New England Patriots. They will make you pay for that. So the Los Angeles Chargers defense needs to step up, needs to keep their foot on the gas pedal. If the Chargers get you a lead, you better hold it because if you if you pull the same stuff that you did last Sunday in New England, Tom Brady will complete the comeback. If you don't believe me, ask the Falcons, who had a, what, 28-3 lead in the Super Bowl? What happened? I, I'll spoil it for you. Tom Brady and the Patriots came back and won that game. So if you're the Chargers defense, be on your toes and keep your foot on the gas pedal. If you need another example, how about the Jaguars last season? They were leading going into the fourth quarter. They took the foot off the pedal. And look who went to the Super Bowl. Wasn't Blake Bortles. Tears. Shocking. Tears. <laughs> Blake Bortles would miss you in the playoffs. All right. That's it in business. <laughs> All right. The answer is for me. Rob Gronkowski. He's been nowhere seen in this playoff. Nowhere seen in the regular season. And the Chargers have a great defense against tight ends. Travis Kelsey, one of the, in my eyes, he's the best tight end in the NFL. Does not have good games when he plays against the Chargers. I think that's the big difference because Tom Brady's known for going after like three players when it comes to the playoffs. Gronkowski, Julian Edelman, and James White. And I think the Chargers are going to be able, with especially guys like Melvin Ingram, are going to be able to contain a guy like James White. Or, and the guy like Rob Gronkowski has to step up, has to make the big catches, because there's going to be times where he's you know, going to be in that one-on-one coverage. And a guy like him has to win those matchups each and every time. The Chargers are going to put up some great defense. They had a phenomenal defensive game plan against the Ravens, and it was able to hold the Ravens quiet for three quarters. I think they can figure out a great game plan. Tom Brady's getting a little bit older. He doesn't seem like he always has it, and he has struggled a lot this season. I'm going to give the edge to the Chargers, even if they have to travel to New England, even if Philip Rivers has not beaten Tom Brady in his entire career. The odds are stacked against the Chargers, but I love the Chargers this weekend. It just seems like it, it, it seems like time for the veteran quarterback to win. Everyone gets their one against Tom Brady, it seems. And this seems like Philip Rivers' one time to beat Tom Brady and get the win. I really like it being a five and sit seed. I don't know why I'm saying but I love it being a five and a sit seed playing each other in the AFC Championship game. I'm giving it to the Chargers because at the end of the day, the Chargers are not a five. They they could have easily been a division winner if they were in any other division. They have played phenomenal this season. They have proven themselves great on the road, and I think they can get it done 
on the road like they have in the past this entire year. So I have the Chargers winning this game. But Jose, do you have the Chargers winning this game? Unfortunately, I do not. And that's because I do not doubt Bill Belichick. I do not doubt Tom Brady, especially when they're at home. I mean, how bad, honestly, did the Patriots look this season? And how often did we talk about, oh, you know, are the Patriots still the dynasty on this podcast or stuff like that? The Patriots looked really, really bad this year. They only played their best football at home. And they dogfought for home field advantage towards the end of the year, making sure they won the games they needed to win. I mean, there was that crazy stat. They haven't played on wild card weekend in what, in almost 10 years, maybe even more than that. So this is a team that knows home field advantage means everything. And especially when the Chiefs lose this weekend, they'll have home field advantage in the AFC championship game as well, too. I love the Chargers. I love Phillip Rivers. I wish he can get one over on Tom Brady, but honestly, Tom Brady's just going to be one of those guys that Phillip Rivers is never going to beat. And I'm going to have the Patriots rolling over the Chargers. This is where everyone that's not a fan of the New England Patriots will be rooting for the Chargers. Everybody except New England wants L.A. to win on Sunday. (laughs) Pretty much. If you're not a Patriots fan, why root for the New England Patriots? With that, we got our last game. And it's Nick Foles, yet again. Uh, Let's start with the first one. Does he deserve the starting job for the Eagles next year? No. And, and you know, it, it's funny because I had this conversation with someone the other day. You know the fans are going to be yelling for Nick Foles to be the starter if he wins another Super Bowl, right? The worst thing that can happen is if Nick Foles wins the Super Bowl. Not for the Philadelphia Eagle fans. They'll love it. But because you're going to have that debate. I mean, we already have that debate. We're having it right now. Carson Wentz or Nick Foles. Honestly, you got to roll with Nick Foles. I mean, you got to roll with Carson Wentz. See, now even I'm tripping over my words here. you got to roll with Carson Wentz. He's the younger QB. I understand there's injury concerns, but come on. You can't judge the guy based off an ACL tear. You can't prep for that kind of stuff. Yes, he got hurt again this year. But to me, Carson Wentz is the more talented quarterback. I think if you're the Eagles, you need to play this smart. You need to try and find to see if you can get a team to overpay for Nick Foles. If not, you can definitely have him on your bench for next year. But I think Carson Wentz is the answer to go with. So I'm going to give two horrible examples. Tom Brady. How did he become the New England Patriots starting quarterback? Injuries to the, uh, the starting quarterback above him. Lamar Jackson, we just saw him play in a playoff game. Joe Flacco was healthy. Who did they go with? Lamar Jackson. Health reasons, not doubt Joe Flacco. Tony Romo is in the broadcast booth. Why? Wasn't able to stay healthy? Dak Prescott took over. Carlson Wentz wasn't able to stay healthy? Nick Foles is taking over. At this point, what is... If you had to ask me who's the better quarterback when healthy, I'll say with you, and I think everybody would say, Carlson Wentz. Who works well under Doug Peterson's system? Nick Foles. They both do. At the end of the day, they both have a ton of success, but one is clearly showing playoff success. One is showing primetime wins. One is showing that when it's under the pressure, he can win and he can stay healthy. 
and one may have a ton of value in Carlson Wentz. It's not the worst in the world if you trade Wentz. It's not the worst in the world if you trade Nick Foles. It, to me, is terrible if you consider keeping both players. But if you had asked me right now, you should keep Nick Foles. I don't like Nick Foles. Obviously, after the first 35 minutes of this podcast, I haven't really said anything positive about Nick Foles, but the only thing I am going to say is he deserves to be the starter. You can get value for trading Carlson Wentz. And every time in the NFL, we see it time and time again. Look at Ryan Fitzpatrick career. He replaces the guy that gets injured. That's just how it goes. Every single time. And this is nothing different. History repeats itself. In the NFL, you are going to get hurt. Even in a position where you are protected the most, you are going to get hurt. And when you do, there's going to be someone to replace you. Carson Wentz is just another number to this category. He's just another number on the chart for this. He is a phenomenal quarterback, and he will start for somebody else but I do not believe he will start for the Philadelphia Eagles come 2019. Just there's no reason for him to be starting for the Eagles come 2019. You already have your starting quarterback. You've already proven you can win with your starting quarterback. And if you're the Eagles and you get into the playoffs next season, I get it, you can trust both quarterbacks, but which one do you really want starting for you? The one that's won a Super Bowl. The one that's won playoff games for you. The one that consistently wins playoff games for you. And I think that's Nick Foles at the end of the day. So, ha! (laughs) Uh, Saints. Finished with the best record. I think they finished with the best record in the NFL. Correct? I'm not looking at the regular season standings anymore. Good care less about them until draft day. Uh, New Orleans. Blaine and New Orleans. We know how well they've been. The offense hasn't really been there to begin this season, uh, especially the passing game. But it's Drew Brees versus Nick Foles. And who do you like in this one? Um, I mean, I'm going to take the Hall of Famer in, in a future Hall of Famer in Drew Brees. Um, Saints at home in the Dome. I think the magic runs out for the Eagles, for Nick Foles and the Eagles. Um, this is a team that, you know, they survived against the Bears. Uh, you know, was it an upset that the Eagles beat the Bears? Sure. But they almost didn't survive that game either against Chicago. Their offense had a tough time getting it going early. And I think if you fall behind early to the Saints defense, you're not going to have the same amount of uh, – you know, you're not going to have an easy time against the Saints defense either. Uh, I know the Bears defense is better than the Saints. So if you struggled against the Bears defense, which is natural, you are also going to struggle against the Saints defense. And Drew Brees is just a pro's pro. Alvin Kamara, I'm expecting a big game out of him. This is more of just of the Saints are at home. It's inside Again, it's inside the Dome. I don't count the Saints out when it comes to this one. So I think the Saints take it over the Eagles. This, one this is a curious question for me because uh, uh, before I give you, I have one more question to ask you. A lot of times in the NFL, we see this like two running back system. And the Saints are a prime candidate of it, where it's Kamara and Andrew. But when it comes to a playoff game, you really just need somebody to get hot. 
You just need somebody to carry the ball a ton. Somebody that you can rely on for the entire game instead of just both players staying cold but healthy. Should the Saints only be playing Kamara in this game? Because we saw the results when Ingram was out. And how well this offense looked, how lethal the offense looked. We saw Michael Thomas getting a ton of uh, throws his way. We saw Kamara getting a ton of yardage in the beginning of the season. And, and then it all of a sudden we dipped. And I feel like the passing game really has declined a bit because Drew Brees just hasn't thrown the ball as much. And it's been relying on running the ball and getting both men involved. So... If you had a choice, do you play both running bats consistently, or do you just try and play one? I would still. Um, you know, you know, you go with what got you there, and I think a big reason the Saints have been so successful. And yes, they had that streak where they were hot, and they were Michael Thomas was hot. But what got the Saints to where they were is that ground and pound, is that two-headed monster of Ingram and Kamara, and knowing. And honestly, that's a good thing is that knowing if Ingram gets cold or if Kamara gets cold, you have a guy like Drew Brees to sling the ball around and throw it to any of your dynamic receivers too. So this is not a bad problem to have, bad problem to have at all. If the Saints go either way, I feel like they'll be fine and perfectly fine, but I'm a big fan of you go with what works. If something's not broken, you don't fix it. There's nothing wrong with the two running back system for the Saints. I think they should just keep going with it until it doesn't work anymore. And then guess what? If it doesn't work, you turn to your Hall of Famer and Drew Brees and he gets the job done. I'm a fan of one. Elliot, one. Todd Gurley, one. New England has two, but really it's one's a runner, one's a catcher. Both the Saints can do both, which is great that Indrum and Kamar have talent to either catch the ball or run the ball. Pick one for the game. And the better man will, I think, show up. And the better man will take over the game. And I think clear as day, that's Alvin Kamara. Because when Ingram was out, this guy was posting better numbers than Todd Gurley was before the season started. It was Alvin Kamara and then Todd Gurley. And Kamara fell off a little bit, and Todd Gurley just went out of control. You can get that same production. You can get more than that production than with Mark Ingram on the field. Nonetheless... I'm like you, and I will agree for the third time. After we only had one agreeance last time, we have three of the four agreeing. I'm going New Orleans. I, I can talk as much compliments or bear compliments for Nick Foles, but I'm not picking him ever to win a playoff game, and I still will not pick him to win a playoff game. He will prove me wrong yet again, but I'll make sure he has to prove me wrong, then pick him. Uh yeah, you know, after going 0-4 last week, my strategy was very simple this week. Just pick what you pick. <laughs> yeah, but we're 0-1 when we pick together. so This is true. I don't know if that helps you or not. <laughs> but certainly, I think there's going to be real exciting uh, playoff times. Uh, obviously, some of the better teams. Uh, not all the best quarterbacks, I think, are in here. Obviously, I don't put Dak Prescott uh, as one of the top eight quarterbacks. I certainly don't put Nick Foles in that. I don't put even Jared Dolf in the top eight. Uh, so it's a little surprising to see a lot of these quarterbacks that aren't necessarily in the top eight. Uh, you see the extra factors that are always in the football games being the difference maker to that. Uh, 
with that, we have two more football topics. Both of them are basically the same. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Arizona Cardinals signed new head coaches. One of them got Bruzeris. It wasn't his former team. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers getting Bruzeris to sign with them, while the Cardinals signed Cliff Kingsbird. And for the Cardinals, Kingsbird fired from Texas Tech signed with the USC as an offensive coordinator and a ton of teams from the NFL because the Jets also were considering Kingsburg for a head coaching position. So that's a little bit of a surprise. You you think that offensive coordinator in college is the best you can do, and yet there are NFL head coaching jobs and a lot of NFL teams that seriously wanted you. And Bruce Aries coming out of retirement to coach the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he's coached quarterbacks of Peyton Manning, Bid Ben, Carlson Palmer, and now gets Jameis Winston. So, Jose, which one you want to talk about first? Well, I'm going to start with Bruce Arians because, um, like you said, coming out of retirement, um, and he's made it very clear that, and he said this before, that the only team that he would come out of retirement for was the Cleveland Browns. Well, he's out of retirement now, but he's coaching the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Clearly not the Cleveland Browns. So I, I do wonder what his reasons were. I would love to hear him speak about it if there is a press conference introducing him, honestly. Because I would like to know what is it that made him come out of retirement. And hey, I mean, this is a huge boost. Like you said, this guy has worked with some of the best QBs there is in veterans like Peyton Manning and Carson Palmer. This might be what Jameis Winston needs as a, you know, a final shot for Jameis Winston. I, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if the Buccaneers look to move on from Jameis Winston, but... Maybe they're giving it one last shot to bring in a veteran coach who can maybe get Winston back on the right track of being only focused on an NFL QB. Maybe this is the one last hurrah to try and help Jameis Winston out. If you're the Buccaneers, you've got to be celebrating. Because Jameis Winston has had a lot of off-the-field issues. And there's rarely a chance where it's like you're going to need a veteran head coach that can put up with big-name quarterbacks, you're also going to have to get a coach that a Jameis Winston and a star quarterback, big-name star quarterback, I'll say that, no matter what, if you're starting for a quarter, uh, team, you're a star in that scenario, uh, especially if you're a first-round pick, has to respect, has to be a veteran that can say, hey, I've coached bigger names than you. I've coached Hall of Famers and future Hall of Famers. I've dealt with bigger guys than you. This is the perfect fit for the Buccaneers. So if you're the Buccaneers, you have to be loving this outcome. And if you're Jameis Winston, I would say if you're looking at this, Jameis Winston's got to be very happy to see Bruce Aries here. Yeah, he's got to be very happy. But honestly, taking it back a little bit, I wouldn't be surprised if you know he's also a little bit intimidated because... Again, I think this is a sign. I think this is a message being sent to Jameis Winston saying, hey, this is the last shot. If you can't get it together under a great coach like Bruce Aarons, there's not going to be much room for you here in the Buccaneers organization. Especially when you look at the quarterbacks that he had for Arizona in his final year, and he was still able to get Arizona to, I think, 500 or better, and he had nobody. And he now turned he's, water into wine. Yeah, that's what he can do. Uh, with whatever quarterback he has, and then when he has a quarterback who can play the position very well and excel 
with especially a lot of the talent that they have with them, like a Chris Goodwin, like Mike Evans. This defense is pretty good. The division is very strong, but we saw teams like Atlanta and Carolina fall off a bit. I mean, this is very exciting, I think, for Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans. I think this is a great signing for the team and for the organization, uh, for everybody, because it almost is going to be like, this just got real. We have a coach. We have a great coach in front of us. This is going. This is our big shot, and this is our time to prove ourselves. And I think this is also a great moment for a lot of these players to have a bigger off season because knowing what they have to go into this season. So I think this is a great momentum boost for them. On the flip, the Arizona Cardinals signing Cliff Kingsbird. Your take on that one? You know, I think it's an interesting choice. Um, I'm not as shocked as some people because this is a guy that got fired from Texas Tech but then was hired as an offensive coordinator. I think there was a lot of interest back then in him as much as their interest now. I mean, USC... You know, had a really good season last year on the offensive side of the ball. We saw Jamal Adams really advocating, you know, saying that he would approve of that if the Jets went ahead and got him. And, you know, I think this is a young man's coach because I think Kingsbury could really do well with a very young roster, which is why I think he would have been a good fit for the Jets too. But he goes to the Cardinals now, who needed a clear change because what they did last year just didn't work. You have a young QB in Josh Rosen. If you're Kingsbury... You know, if it came down to the Jets and the Cardinals, we don't really know, you know, what his options really came down to. I mean, you have to love either option, right? You're coming into a new team. You have a franchise quarterback, a very young franchise quarterback, who is going to have a bright future. So in this case for the Cardinals, Josh Rosen. You have a dynamic running back still, and David Johnson, who still has plenty of years left in the tank. What is there not to like about this Cardinals job? To me, I think the Cardinals is still a very good team. I think they had a very down year last year. Do I think they overreacted to firing their first-year head coach? Yeah, I do think so, a little bit. But bringing in a fresh mind here to work with Josh Rosen, hopefully in this year's draft they work on getting Rosen some weapons to throw the ball to, and I think you could have a good a good little start to something here. I I think this is a great fit. Uh, you know, it's an offensive-minded head coach. Uh, this is a guy that, yeah, he wasn't able to put up the win production in Texas Tech, but he's also coached guys like Johnny Manziel. And Manziel, although it didn't make it into the NFL as what we all expected him to be, a bust, uh, but it's a big name in college. This guy was a first-rounder. Josh Rosen is, too. And it's a rookie, uh, it's a rookie player, and it's still a player that still has a lot to learn. And the right coach can put that into there. Uh, David Johnson is only what a a third year running back at this point, maybe a fourth year running back. The bottom line is he's still very young, and when you consider the fact that he missed an entire year of football, I almost consider him a year back. So it's a very young running back. The veteran presence is Larry Fitzgerald if he so comes back, if he does come back. But then there are other options where he could go, whether it be a team like Baltimore or a team like Tampa Bay at this point. So there are different options. But 
This is an offensive-minded head coach on a Cardinals team that played terrible offense. And they're going to have the first pick in the draft. They're going to have to go, whether they're going to let the trade the pick or they're going to let the boost the offense or add some defensive help because they could use any help on this team. It's going to be a lot of work, and it's going to be a working progress. And the only hope I have for the Cardinals is, after one year, he doesn't get fired if he has a bad year. Because, again, it's a rookie head coach on a team that's, you know, wasn't expected to do great. And especially if he's coming off of a team that just went 3-13 and with the rookie head coach. So a lot of pressure is going to be on him. Both coaches getting a four-year deal with a five-year option. I expect good results from both coaches. I'm very excited to see Bruce Aries back in the NFL. I did not want to see him retired. Uh, I think he's just one of the best offensive coaches in the league. And when Tampa Bay was putting up a ton of points, I think it's exciting because Tampa Bay had the style of, you know, we're going to play till 40. Either we're going to put up 40 or you're going to put up 40. One of us is going to put up 40, and we'll just see who can wind up with the most points at the end of this game because defense isn't going to matter. I think a lot can change. He might bring in Todd Bowles as a defensive head coach. I think that could be a good fit again. But we'll certainly see. But I, I'm happy Bruce Aries is back in the NFL. So congratulations to Tampa Bay Buccaneers on getting him. And I think for the Cardinals, it's a good signing as well. We're going to talk a little bit about the NBA, but I want to jump into baseball pretty quick. It seems like there are two favorites for the MVP race, and Giannis Antetokounmpo, hopefully that's right, and James Harden, a lot easier. Uh, Jose, let's start with who's your favorite. Obviously, these would be the two for it, so one of these two seems to be the one that will most likely win. And who is your dark horse that isn't one of these two that could still have a shot at winning the MVP? So to me, the favorite right now is probably James Harden. Um, when I look at MVP, I look I like to look at the impact that someone has on a team. You know, most valuable. Who's the most valuable to their team? And yes, you can argue that you know Atentacumpo is you know the highlight of the of the Bucks. You know, without the without him, there is no Bucks team. But they also play in a very weak Eastern Conference where even if Atentacumpo wasn't playing, I could see the Bucks being a, a measly eight seed like my Brooklyn Nets. You look at the Rockets, however. If it wasn't for James Harden, the Rockets would not be anywhere near the playoffs. The Rockets would not finish anywhere in the eight spots for the Western Conference standings. This would be an NBA lottery team competing with the Suns and the Cavs for the first pick in the draft. James Harden is amazing at what he does and everything that he does being a floor general. You know, being able to coexist with someone like Chris Paul, even though James Harden has like selfish ball handling tendencies. You know, James Harden, to me has really grown into a fantastic player over the past couple of seasons, and he's my favorite to win the MVP this year. My dark horse, however, is Kawhi Leonard. We cannot ignore Kawhi Leonard's campaign for MVP. He's really turned the tide around for the Toronto Raptors. I mean, this team went from being a, you know, second-best team in the Eastern Conference to being maybe the best team in the, in the Eastern Conference, and they look a lot more dominant. They are a lot more serious And, you know, I think we forgot because last year Kawhi Leonard barely played how good of a two-way player he really is. But I think Leonard is really reminding us this year just how good of a player he can be. And he can honestly be one of the top five best players in the NBA, period. Yeah, I look at it and say 
the Milwaukee Bucks, technically 28 and 11, have the least amount of losses in the NBA. Uh, they have the second most wins in the Eastern Conference. And I do value wins. I hate valuing wins. But in the NBA, we should value wins a little bit more. Because of the fact that it's just one MVP. And it deals with all the teams. So I do think records do matter. I do think who you're with matters as well. And I'm going to give it over Giannis. The Rockets had a very slow start. Harden's putting up great numbers. The Rockets are winning games right now. If he consistently does this all season long, I think Harden's easily going to win the MVP. But I don't think he's putting up 35 points every single night, especially when Chris Paul finally can get back, get healthy. I think that will slow down Harden's role. He won't have to do as much. And I think that will limit him on the option as far as MVP goes. But Giannis has been fantastic this season. You know, less points than Harden. There's no denying that. But his field goal percentage is very good. He's the best inside scorer in the entire paint in the NBA. He doesn't shoot many threes. But what we also look at that we forget, he has 12.6 rebounds per game. On top of that, he has six assists per game. He's also averaging over a block and a half. He's doing it all. He's averaging a double-double. He's one of the top rebounders in the entire NBA, and I think there has to be more than just points. He's a top 10. He's ninth in points in the lead. But when you also consider rebounds, he's far ahead of what a guy like James Harden can do in rebounds, whereas Harden has just under six. And as far as assists go, Instead of the 10-plus we saw James Harden average, he's averaging 8.7. Not too far away from Antetokounmpo's sits assist per game. So I think there's just more for Antetokounmpo when you consider the fact that he's 7th in rebounding in the entire NBA. And so my dark horse, though, is Nitola uh, Jokic. This guy averages triple-double nights, He's a center is that doing it. And what's phenomenal about it is you're also seeing the fact that 10.1 rebounds per game, 7.4 assists per game, not as much points, 18.9. But what do I also factor when it comes into the NBA? I do factor wins. And the Nuggets have the best record in the Western Conference. And to me, when you consider the Western Conference was going to be what? Only four teams we were considering for the best record. Golden State, possibly Houston, but we all figured they were going to fall off a bit. Golden State again. The Thunder and the Lakers. If the Lakers and LeBron James could win a lot of games, and LeBron James could... You know, obviously, I don't think that will work out for the Lakers, but did anybody pick the Nuggets to start 26-12 with the best record in the Western Conference? I think right then and there, it should be... You know, there should be more consideration than getting Joker to play in just the All-Star game. He should be looking at a guy that's getting MVP votes because he has more assists than Antetokounmpo. He has less points. He has a great record and a better record than the Rockets. And he has more rebounds, and he's averaging a double-double each night. 
So it's he is my dark horse. I don't think he will win. I think Denver hurts him. Just because how many times do we see Denver on TV? Uh, but he certainly should be a dark horse of consideration. Going into MLB, David Robinson signs a two-year with a third-year option with the Phillies. Zach Britton signs a three-year deal with the Yankees. Which relief pitcher do you like the signing of more? Honestly, I like the Zach Britton signing a lot. Um, I feel like it makes sense. One of the biggest strengths for the Yankees over the past couple of years has been their bullpen. Yes, you want to talk about Aaron Judge, you want to talk about Stan, you want to talk about Sanchez, all these heavy hitters. But the Yankees' bullpen was really at its best when they had Chapman and even when they had Miller and when they had Batances. And even a couple of years ago when they traded for Tommy Canely and they had David Robertson. To me, bullpens are still the name of the game. And if you're the Yankees, you're asking your starters to get you six, seven solid innings. And you have a combination of Britain, Matances, and Chapman. To me, that's a really good. I think the Yankees lucked out by being able to re-sign Britain. I'm very surprised Britain didn't get money to be a closer elsewhere. So I think the Yankees are really, really fortunate that Britain fall back into their lap to be a setup man again. Because it allows you to use Matances however you may please. Now... I do like the signing for Robertson for the Phillies, but honestly, I, I still feel like the Phillies need to do more. So right now, I feel like I like the Britain signing a whole lot more because the Yankees are a lot closer to contending, in my opinion, than the Phillies are. Phillies struggled with left-handed batters uh, all season long. David Robinson posts one of the best uh, left-handed pitching uh, versus left-handed batters, uh, and he's a righty at the end of the day. And I think... They don't really have a closer. The Phillies, we we know them to not have a closer. Uh, Zach Britton's more going to be a setup guy when for he's been so much of a dominating closer for his entire career. Uh, he could even be a seventh inning guy when you consider Dylan Batances, like you said. Uh, David Robinson is probably not going to be the closer on this team. It's probably going to be Sir Anthony. Uh, and I like Sir Anthony. And I think David Robinson is a much better relief pitcher when he's not the closer of the team and when you have the different options of who to go to. And if you're versing more of lefties when it comes to the ninth inning, you can go with Robinson. So I think for the Phillies, Robinson presents more options than Britain for the Yankees. And so I'm going to give the, the Phillies getting the better signing, uh, but both of them, two of the best bullpen pitchers in baseball, a ton of bullpen pitchers still left. Obviously, Craig Kimball stands out the most. Uh, I'm still wondering where he might go. But we still have a lot of bid signings left to go for this MLB free agency. Uh, we'll get into two more on possibility outcomes. And I think everybody knows which two we're talking about. But before that, let's talk a little bit about the AL Central, because we've been covering teams. We took a break from that in our last podcast to talk about the Hall of Fame ballot coming up soon. So let's start with the AL Central, and we'll start with the Royals. Why not? Uh, you know, there's not much to say about the Royals. They signed Billy Hamilton this offseason. Uh, that's probably the most positive thing I'll say about the Royals. Uh, it's going to be a tough year for them. And they certainly need a ton of bullpen help and a little bit of starting pitching help. Maybe a lot of starting pitching help. But what are you looking at this season for the Royals as? Honestly, for the Royals, it's just going to be another year of them trying to rebuild and get back to where they were a couple of years ago. 
Um, I think them signing Billy Hamilton was just, you know, them having insurance for someone to deal at the deadline. You know, if Billy Hamilton puts together a good first half of the season, there will be a team out there that would want to pay for a speedy um, outfielder who's a good defender. And also Billy Hamilton, don't forget, he can steal a lot of bases. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be playoff teams out there that would love to have the pinch runner on the bench. So I feel like the Royals signing um, Billy Hamilton was really just a ploy to make sure they have someone to deal at the deadline. Um, other than that, you know, there's not much else to say about the Royals. This is a team that needs to keep getting better, um, you know, and draft better. They do have some bright spots. I think Raul Mondesi is going to have another good year. Whit Merrifield had a very low-key, really, really good season for them last year. Um, I think they need to just keep building around him and, you know, and go from there. You know, it stinks when a team, you know, you make the World Series in 2014, you make the, you know, you win the World Series in 2015. Sorry, Met fans. And you kind of slowly fall from grace as you, you know, you lose guys like Hosmer, you lose Lorenzo Cain, you lose Mike Moustakis. So, you know, for the Royals, it's, a, it's just all about getting back to that point to where you were. It's going to take some time. Um, but right now, the Central is wide open enough where you can kind of retool here. And I don't think the Royals are going to be way too far away from contending again. Um, just not in the next year or two, in my opinion. Yeah, this it's going to be a long season for the Royals. What else is there left to say? They're, the American League right now, there's what? The Yankees, Red Sox, Astros. We all know are going to dominate. It's left then with the A's. The Indians are still one of the better teams in the uh, AL. The Rays as well. There's not much openings when you look at the American League. Compared to the National League, where there were like eight to ten teams fighting it out consistently, and then the Mets and Marlins and like maybe the Padres were looking on the outside. So there's a lot more of an actual gap where you can make a move or two and be right there in the playoffs and be considered in the playoff hunt before the season starts. But the Royals could go out, find the money somewhere to sign both Harper and Machado, and I still don't think we're even calling this team a playoff team. And if we are, we're calling them just the AL Central. It's just there's not much they're going to do from there on. So it's going to be a rough year for the Royals. He's uh, mentioned Whit Merrifield. I think he's going to get traded come the trade deadline. And I know there's a lot of second baseman options right now in the free agent market. Uh, but you know, just, there's always a team that can use a contact hitter like Merrifield. Uh, and I think there's going to be a coming a point where you just got to keep trading players to try and rebuild a little bit uh, because holding on to somebody that you're going to have for a couple of years when you're not going to be competing just may not help you long term. So I do think there's a possibility he could get traded as well. But I think anybody should be for sale when it comes to the Royals if they're not considered in the future of the next couple of years or further along. Uh, for the Detroit Tigers, it seems like nothing's going on with them and that might be because who are they going to sign that they haven't signed to a really, really long-term deal? Uh, the Tigers seem to be stuck in a standstill. Is there any way they get out of this? You know, eventually they will. I just don't see it happening again, like in the next year or two, kind of like the Royals. You know, like you said, you know, the Tigers are kind of paying the price right now um, for being all in the past couple of years. And you know what? Honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. This is just kind of what happens sometimes in baseball. When you're a team like Detroit – 
and you're going for it and you're chasing titles and you keep winning the AL Central. You know, for a lot of fans, I bet you if you ask a lot of Tiger fans, it was worth it going for it for all those years. It just sucks that they couldn't get it done and they couldn't put a World Series in their pocket to show for it. Um, but for right now, you know, the Tigers are a lot like the Phillies before the Phillies got good again. You know, they went on their reign of dominance and now they're kind of just paying the price for hanging on to people for a little bit too long and they got to rebuild. Um, and I think they know that. So it's going to take a little bit of time. But I think Detroit will eventually get there. Step number one, though, and you and me talked about this before we started recording today, would be trading Nick Castellanos. I think right now he is your guy. Um, I think you wait, though. I think you wait to the deadline because right now, you know, Machado is out there and Moustakis is out there. So third base is not exactly a very limited field here. Um, we know he can also play some outfield, too. Um, so he's a very versatile player as well. And so I think you wait for the deadline. I think there will be a team that needs a right-handed power bat. And step one would be to trade Nick Castellanos and go from there, really, because they don't have many other trade chips. When you consider these type of trades that they – and you're right. I, I don't view – we talked about it a couple of years ago. It's like Michael Fulmer, when he was a rookie of the year, was on the trade block rumors because of the idea of packaging him with a Jordan Zimmerman. Do you feel like it's better for the Tigers to trade, let's say, Nick and get a lot of prospects or to trade them and get a salary removed off their team? Well, I think you need to do both, but you can't do it with a player like Castellanos. I think with a player like Castellanos, you can actually get some prospects back for him. Not that you can't get prospects back for Fulmer, but I do think someone like Fulmer you could pair up with another pitcher because teams are always going to need pitching but to me Castellanos is the guy that you get prospects for if you want to pair Fulmer up with someone like Zimmerman go for it if you want to pair Zimmerman up with someone else on this team go for it but Castellanos to me is that player that teams are really going to like he's that player that has a lot of years left to control still at a very cheap amount he doesn't have a mega contract tied to him that's the kind of guy you need to get prospects for yeah, but they certainly do have to do both regardless. I think Shane Green is a great chip to trade come the trade deadline. Uh, and even, you know, sorry to cut you off, but yeah. even before trading Nick Castellanos, I think step one step one has to be the salary relief. But it's hard to do that. You're stuck with guys like Miguel Cabrera, and I'm not saying stuck with because it's a bad thing, but he's just in a contract that's going to be forever. Jordan and both of his legs are probably gone by now. So, yeah, they are technically stuck with. Yeah, and he's a DH. He's no longer a first baseman. He's just a pure DH on this team. We saw Victor Martinez retire, uh, but you still have guys like Jordan Zimmerman. They had a trade away Justin Upton. Uh, we remember the Prince Fielder deal that they did, and then they traded away and got Ian Kinsler. So, th- there's constantly moves that they're trying to make. But this just seems like a never-ending battle with the way they're doing their signings. That they're not fits in their situations. And, you know, if they wanted to get rid of the salary caps, if they wanted to get rid of a lot of this extra money on their team, they would have traded Fulmer a couple of years ago when he had a lot more value to him. That's not to say his value's completely dropped off, but, you know, more years to have a player is way more value. And maybe you bite the bullet of a Jordan Zoom. Or, or you bite the bullet somewhere else. But th- this team's in a far ditch right now, and it's going to be tough because 
I don't think even pairing a Shane Green or pairing a Nick Castellanos or, or finding something else to pair with it is going to result in getting this team above ground because it's, it's going to be a long process. Uh, they're just as bad as the Royals, except they have a ton of money attached to their team. The only good news is whatever they get out of it, they'll have a ton of money again because Detroit is known for spending. But the good news is, too, for the Tigers is that, yes, they have a lot of money tied up, but they have it tied up in players that can actually help teams. Like, Jordan Zimmerman can still help a team out there. So I think step one is just, you know, knowing how much to put in to help teams be willing to take that salary off your hands. I'm not going to go that far that, to say Jordan Zimmerman can help a team. He has not pitched well since, what, his days with Washington? But that guy is still in there somewhere. I don't think, you know, he's completely gone. Oh, I think he's gone. I, I think he's definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm going right to his stats right now. I mean, they just signed Tyson Ross this offseason. Let's see, $24 million. Uh, 2018. Nope, that's his hitting. Uh, but if you squint a little bit, I mean. I squint a lot, and I'm seeing a four and a half ERA. Which, you know, was an improvement from his sits ERA the year prior. Well, there you go. Maybe it'll lower to three, three and a half next yeah, this yeah. year. The, the good news is at 4.52 ERA was his lowest of his three-year career with the Detroit Tigers. He also had the least amount of his wins at seven with the Tigers. But, I mean, there's not much to love about, like, Jordan Zimmerman. Like, you're, you're going to take on this contract? No, no. No, the Tigers are going to have to pay a lot of it. They're going to have to pay all of it because no one's taking this contract. Uh, th- there is nothing to to say like this is going to work out long term. They had chances to do it, and I don't think they're going to trade away their players. Or if they do, it's going to be a Shane Green. They're going to be able to trade some bullpen pieces at the end of the day, and they should trade bullpen pieces. Nothing to me says more useless than a bottom-feeding team with a top bullpen pitcher or a pitcher in the relief that they can trade away. Because it's just, you know, you never know with those guys, but you can always get something for those guys. Minnesota Twins, uh, they 78-84. Six games under five hundred after they made the playoffs the year prior. Uh, probably one of the most disappointing seasons this year or in for any MLB team where they drop down and they go six games under 500 after making the playoffs. They had a lot of power to the team. Joe Maurer retired. He'll be a future Twins Hall of Famer for sure. They had Nelson Cruz. They had Jonathan Scope. What else did the Twins need to add? Well, to me, I would like to see the Twins go out there and sign another starting pitcher. Um, you know, they have a very young rotation. They had Irvin Santana last year, who was hurt for most of the year. He's back out there on the free agent market. Guys like James Shields are out there. Yes, these guys are not attractive options, but they are guys that could take a one-year deal, looking to revamp their career that Minnesota can really take advantage of. Um, I also think Minnesota needs to decide, what are they doing with guys like Miguel Sano? What are they doing with guys with Byron Buxton? I think it's time for the Twins. You know, again, in a division that could, that could be wide open, right? The Indians, window, the Indians' window to win could slowly be closing here. So this might be the time to strike for the Twins. And by signing uh, Nelson Cruz, by signing Jonathan Scope, it looks like they're going for it. 
I would love to see the Twins make another statement and sign a guy like Mike Moustakis or something. You know, make it clear that you're willing to take the window now to win, especially since there's less teams competing. Um, you know, find out if Miguel Sano is going to stick around for a while. Find out if By- Byron Buxton is the answer in center field. If not, then these guys need to go too. So I think the Twins are on a good track right here. I would love to see them add a starting pitcher. I don't want them to go crazy trying to get a starting pitcher, but I also think Mike Moustakis would be a nice fit at third base or maybe even play some first base for them. But I would love to see them pull off another semi-big signing here to really make a statement that they're going to go for it in 2019. You know, one thing I would love to see the Twins do is get into a bidding war with the Red Sox for Trade Kimball. Because there's only a matter of time before Trade Kimball signs with a team. And most likely it's going to be the Boston Red Sox just they're losing all their bullpen pieces and why not get one of the best relief pitchers in all of baseball. And his asking price has lowered since you know no one's been talking to him about the $100 million contract he wants. But even still, if you're uh, Minnesota, you have a lot of close games at times. You have a good offense coming ahead your way. You have some power coming up. Why not have one of the most dominant closers in all of baseball? Why not just take one inning out of every game when you have Craig Kimball on the mound? Because that's essentially what you're paying for. You're paying for it being a nine-inning ball game versus an eight-inning ball game for your opposing team. Because Kimball's going to shut down every time he comes out. Uh, and that's what I would love to see. I think they really need some bullpen help. I think Blake Parker right now is like the top candidate to be their closer. So if you can add a guy like him, uh, Craig, that's going to be phenomenal for them. Uh, I think you need a dominant pitcher in a bullpen. You may need to go two options. I, I don't think Minnesota should stop spending. If you're going on these one-year uh, one year options on like a Nelson Cruz, on a Jonathan Strope, that's perfect. That just means that you'll have money again in that second or third year for other players that if you can do one bid name contract. I'm not expecting the biggest names of players, but Craig Kimball is the way to go. I, uh, dominant closer, there's still other options out there if you want to go a different closing route, but you need a bullpen piece. You need to show that you're willing to compete. I think that's the key. I think you agree with that too. And the first way to do that is to add a bid relief pitcher because, again, there's no reason for bad teams to have a good pitcher a good relief pitcher. But there's a great reason for teams competing. Look at the Mets. Great teams that are looking to compete this year. One of the first things they do is add a closer. Showing that they're in. The Phillies did that, David Robinson. The White Sox are doing that, Kelvin Herrera. The Mets are doing that, Edwin Diaz and Jerry's familiar. The Cardinals are doing that again, Andrew Miller. One of the biggest factors. I don't think his star players, I think his closers show the value that you're competing for this season. Because the Padres aren't doing that. They signed other players like Ian Kinsler, but they're still doing Kirby Yates. I like Kirby Yates. I don't know if he's the best closing option for you, but that just shows a different way to look at it. So I think the closer is a way to go that can just boost fan uh, morale and show more that you're involved this offseason. For the White Sox, they signed Kelvin Herrera. But I think a bigger signing 
is John Jay. And I would never say that ever. <laughs> what is this, 2007? No, no, 2000, nothing. 2000 only if I'm playing the video game and I upload all the stats. Um, but there's an outlier to this. Yonder Alonso is Manny Machado's brother-in-law. He's married to his. Uh, he's married to Manny Machado's sister. This is important. It's not important. It's important. <laughs> it's not important. John Jay is works out with Yonder Alonso and Manny Machado in the off season <laughs> for the last couple of years. Are the White Sox trying to just build a family environment? To say, hey, come on, Machado, all your buddies are here, all your family's here. We're the perfect team to sign you. Do you like the move the White Sox are making? I do, but it's not because they're trying to build a family around Manny Machado. I think the White Sox are very smart. I feel like they look at the AL Central and they say, hey, the Royals aren't going anywhere. The Tigers, they're not going anywhere either. The Twins are sort of on the brink of contention. But the White Sox are a really young and talented team. They had a really good year last year. I know the record may not show it, and they may not have the wins and losses. But I do feel like this team is stacked with talent, and they know it. And when a team knows that they're talented, it can be a really scary thing and a confidence booster. So do I like John Jay? Yes, because he's a very veteran outfielder. You can platoon him. He'll do just fine. And he brings a lot of grit to the team as well, too. Yes, they signed Alonzo, but that's not going to persuade Machado to come. But what the White Sox do need is a star player. So the White Sox need to go out there. They need to sign Manny Machado or Bryce Harper. If they come away with none, it's a disappointing offseason in my opinion because you have a team that's very young. And whether you keep Yohan Mankata or you, you play Yomer Sanchez, you know you have Michael Kopech probably coming back next year. I think the White Sox need to sit down Machado or sit down Harper and say, hey, we might not win next year. We might not win this year in 2019. But when we get Kopech back from Tommy John surgery, we're going to be a team that's going to be a, you know, a force to be reckoned with. Because they also signed Kelvin Herrera to a two-year deal. So again, they're prepping themselves, maybe not for 2019, but for 2020, I can really see the White Sox going for the kill. But it starts with signing a player like Machado or Harper. I want the White Sox to get one of these two guys. If they don't, I think they're setting themselves back again. Well, this sets up the perfect way to get Manny Machado. Because Yeah, but I think you do it by showing him the young talent that you have, not by bringing in his family. Well, I think you do both. I, I, I think if you're trying to say, if you're the White Sox, right, uh, you're competing with, let's say, two other teams right now. Both are East Coast. The Phillies, which are 45... No, sorry, that's... Uh, are, an hour or two away from Baltimore. They're, they're not completely far away. Um, I've done the trip before. Uh, <laughs> I like to visit places. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, you're setting up in the East Coast. New York, obviously. Philadelphia. Two bigger markets. Uh, Chicago's great, but it's not the Cubs. Um, it, it's a different stadium. It has a different feel to it. Uh, both of them are very nice stadiums, but it's not the Chicago Cubs. It's not Ridley Field. It's not Yankee Stadium. But what you can also do is if you can match whatever money that the Yankees are going to throw at them, 
he can match whatever money the Phillies are going to throw at him, if he can say, hey, let's give him an extra $25 million. let's give him an extra $30 million over this 10-year deal that we'll put across, we can afford it because we're paying nobody right now. We can make it a little bit front-heavy or back-heavy, give him a team option, and we can also say to him, you know, you have a team option in a couple of years when everybody of, like, you know, Yonder Alonso or John Jay are gone or these young guys, you know, are further along where we have to resign them. But for now, this is more, you know, your family environment. More than, like, New York can offer you. More than Philadelphia can offer you because all of your family will be here then. So I, I think this is great moves by the White Sox. I, I think this is a competitive edge by the White Sox. And it's almost like saying, you know, we're the perfect fit for you at this point. So I love what the White Sox are doing here. Um, and I do have them as the favorite because of this signing, not just of John Jay, because of everything they've done this offseason to try and get Manny Machado, that they'll go the extra mile over the Yankees or the Phillies for Manny Machado. So I have them as the favorite to sign Machado. Where is your favorite spot that Machado lines up? And what about Bryce Harper before we get into the Indians? Well, if we're talking about Bryce Harper, I think my favorite landing spot for him is Philadelphia. I just think, you know, they're running out of places, these guys. You know, it's getting late into the offseason. It's already January. Um, you know, there was rumors that Harper you know, spoke with Philly last weekend. Apparently there's rumors that Bryce Harper is meeting with Philadelphia face-to-face this weekend. And I feel like the Phillies have been the most aggressive team. I feel like both Harper and Machado were both holding out hopes that the Yankees wanted them and needed them. But the truth is the Yankees don't really need them. You want to talk about teams that need these guys, it's the White Sox, it's the Phillies, it's the Dodgers, you know, it's the Cardinals in my opinion. But I think Harper is in line to probably sign with the Philadelphia Phillies, um, especially since he's going to have a face-to-face meeting with them. You know, this is the most progress we've seen with a team um, that has been reported on so far with Harper. For Machado, I mean, I think the White Sox are a good fit for him, but it's not because of the, you know, the silly reasons. You know, it sounds funny that they signed his brother-in-law and they signed John Jay, but I think it's because the talent is there for the White Sox. This is a team that's a year away from contending. And I only say a year away because Kopech will be, is going to be missing in 2019 because of Tommy John surgery. If Michael Kopech was starting the year on the roster this year, I'd have a lot more confidence in the White Sox being able to take down the Indians. And you never know. Maybe Kopech, maybe he comes back for the end of 2019. But this team is really talented. You know, we hear all the time about Yohan Moncada. But Yomer Sanchez had just as good as a year as Moncada. And if you add Machado to that mix, you know, you're talking about a really good defensive infield. Um, But again, you really need that star power for the White Sox because this team, this young team is going to need a leader. And as much as we like to talk about Machado's antics, and how he was a scumbag in the playoffs, you know, he, he can still be a leader for a very young team. So I also agree with you. I kind of have the Phillies' head just because there's no other team that's really put themselves out there for Bryce Harper. Uh, it, I don't even know the second team to put there at the moment. Uh, for Machado, I think there's far more options available for him. And so I'm going to give the White Sox a favorite just because of everything of the family around them. Yes, that to me is a big deal. And yes, when you consider Chicago still a big market area, just the the lesser known team. Uh, You know, why not? 
I think it's a good fit for Manny Machado if he says, hey, why don't I do a play here for a couple of years and then use a player option to try and see if I can get more money somewhere else. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, you still enjoy some of the prime of your career in an environment with a lot of young players, in an environment with a lot of family members. So, you know, it's a good atmosphere fit for Machado. And as you said, like a lot of antics, but I think a lot of those antics could be cut down with certain players around them that could keep them in in line almost to say. And who better do that than players that he really respects, that he really likes, that are also his brother-in-law type people and family. So I think that also helps in the long term as well. For the Indians, they won the division this last season. They're the favorite, most likely, to win the division again this season. But they trade away Jan Domes. They trade for Kevin Pilecki. Now, all of a sudden, it seems like Corey Kluber's available. Trevor Bear's available. They're making a lot of interesting moves. So first, on the catching side, do you think Kevin Pilecki should be the starting catcher for the Cleveland Indians? And then second, do you agree with the uh, Indians trying to shop one of their starting pitchers? And if they are to trade one, who do you think they should trade? Yeah, Kevin Pulecki is a starting catcher. That's a really, really funny joke, Nick. Um, no, but in all seriousness, I think it should be a platoon. Um, or you see who wins the starting job in spring training. You know, Jan Gomes is no longer on the team. So that opens the door for someone like Kevin Pulecki or even Roberto Perez if they decide to go that route. Um, I'm not comfortable enough with saying Ploiecki should be the starter, but I do think Ploiecki does have the tools um, to be an everyday catcher over Roberto Perez for them. But to me, the starting pitching thing is really intriguing. That's the most important part to me because not only did they sign, you know, as you said, they traded away Jan Gomes and Kluber's on the trading block, but they also gave Carlos Carrasco an extension. So to me, it's why are you trading away some pieces but also signing others? And I think what Cleveland's trying to do here is they're trying to do a mini rebuild on the fly, right? You know, Kluber is in his 30s. His contract is ending soon. So to me, I think if I'm going to move anybody, I'm going to move Corey Kluber. I'm going to ask for major league ready prospects, not guys who are too far away, and just simply retool this team. And why not sign a guy like Kluber instead of training him and trading him? Because guys like Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez, they're still far away from free agency. But how good would it be if Cleveland could lock those guys up for the next six, seven years if they have to? You know, I, I think Cleveland knows who's, who they want to extend, guys like Lindor, guys like Ramirez. You can only do that if you have the money available. If you're not going to re-sign Kluber because you have other interests elsewhere, you might as well trade him, keep guys like Carrasco, keep guys like Salazar, and get back Major League-ready players so you can help move forward in 2019 and 2020. Because... Again, this division is going to be wide open. So if you're the Indians, you still have a small window to still be on top here. There's no guarantee that the White Sox take the next step forward. There's no guarantee that the Twins' young guys are going to step up. So if, if you're the Indians, you're still in control here. You don't need to trade Kluber or Bauer, but if you can, it also doesn't hurt in the future with trying to sign guys like Lindor or Ramirez. Yeah, it certainly helps. And then, like, Edwin and Charcion was traded. So it should open up a decent amount of money that route. Uh you know, I don't really love the idea of trading one of their starting pitchers away. 
But even if Corey Kluber gets traded away or Trevor gets traded away, I think the Indians are still the favorite to win that division. I don't necessarily think that they'll win a playoff series or get out beating teams like the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Astros, but there's nothing to take away from them winning this division. The only competition they have is the closest last season, finished six games under 500. So we're not looking at like this is a real tough division to win. This is the weakest division in the MLB. So I think the Indians, if they, even if they lose their ace, are fine. Health is a big factor for them when they come to their starting pitcher. They still have Carlos Carrasco. And if Danny Salazar can actually pitch one inning for one single year, that I think would be an incredible task because he missed all of last season. It seems like he missed every single season at this point. Uh, but like you said, when you have Francisco Lindor, when you have Jose Ramirez, you're still going to win baseball games with those two guys just alone. Uh, they have a lot of talent around them. They should be able to get it done no matter what. Uh, I agree with you, though. You, you're not rebuilding. So MLB-ready prospects. Uh, if you can trade one guy and add three guys to your, uh, your roster, whether it's a starting pitcher, an outfielder, and then a bullpen piece, you'd make that kind of trade. It's worth it in the end. I don't know what exactly they'll trade for, uh, but if they're going to trade two, probably the Dodgers at the end of the day. It always seems like the Dodgers make these tired moves. I think the Dodgers would be a good fit for these trades. I don't really want that to happen. I can't stand when the Dodgers continuously do those type of moves. Uh, not really liking the Dodgers. I hate that. I don't like teams that just throw money everywhere and solve their problems with that. It's uh, the luck of the draw and the willingness to spend. Uh, but I think they'd be a good fit because they have guys like a Chad Taylor, who's just flexible to play in position, a Kiki Hernandez, the same uh, factor. And there's other players that are young prospects ready to play in the MLB that the Dodgers have that the Indians could desperately need some help with as well. So if they are going to trade, I think the Dodgers are going to be the team they trade with. Uh, we trade one of their starting pitchers away. Lastly, Clemson versus Alabama yesterday. Clemson blowing out Alabama uh, in this fifth time these two teams are meeting. And, and Nick Saban completely outcoached in this game. Uh, you know, I'm not going to get too far into the game. Clemson just straight out outplayed them. But for Clemson, Lawrence is a freshman quarterback. Ross, freshman wide receiver. This is a very young Clemson team that just dominated Alabama the entire way. Do you feel like this is going to be a really rough next couple of years for the entire college football because of Thompson? Yeah, I mean, it is. And when it comes down to college sports, it gets very dicey, right? Because it's all about how long can you keep the same group of guys together? Well, the NFL has a rule. You can't declare for the draft after, what, your sophomore season? So Third third even longer so Clemson's gonna have these guys around for a very very long time I would not be surprised if Clemson becomes the new Alabama and we start seeing Clemson for the next couple of years make the playoffs well not just make the playoffs but 
you know, go on their run of dominance like Alabama does every single year. It might be Clemson going into this year. Because think about it, you know, when Deshaun Watson was in Clemson, they were pretty dominant. Now they have Taylor Lawrence, and he's there for three, two more years after this one. You could see some more championships coming Clemson, Clemson's way. Yeah, this is this is also interesting because of Tua. Uh, I'm not going to try his last name. Tua, uh, <laughs> who's currently ranked the number one NFL draft prospect in 2020. Lawrence is ranked the number one NFL draft prospect in 2021. And this is what I was reading about. Could this be like the future Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady rivalry in the NFL? I don't know if I'd go that far. But I think that's certainly an interesting analogy. We've seen Clemson, Alabama face five years. What they're doing is incredible. Uh, the easiest comparison is LeBron James versus the Golden State Golden State Warriors. But these two guys are going to be facing each other possibly far more in their career in the NFL. It's just a matter of if they can get in the same division or the same conference and face each other far more. But this certainly has to be even more of an exciting time when you consider the future that these two kids can have as well. More than just Clemson and Alabama, as far as just a quarterback standpoint, there's even more to like about this. Yeah, I mean, if these two kids stay healthy, and, and, you, and you hope that they do for their sake, um, you know, it's been a while since we've had two QBs so close in terms of, you know, draft years in age-wise, too, both be this dominant. And, you know, it's the first time in a while we've seen two championship teams be led by rookies, right? When Tua took over in that championship game for Alabama, you know, we were fascinated by it. Last night we were fascinated by Lawrence. And, you know, so it's, it's been a while since freshmen have came in and really taken over their teams. And, and who knows? You know, again, Tua is a year ahead of Lawrence, so he'll be in the NFL first. But it, it really is something to look forward to because – you know, Peyton Manning's already retired. You know, there's going to be a year where there's not going to be Roethlisberger anymore or Brady. And we're going to expect, be expecting a new wave of QBs. I mean, I'm even looking forward to Deshaun Watson and Taylor Lawrence doing battle in the future, two Clemson QBs. Um, so it's just it's a really exciting time right now to, um, to see these rookies develop on a national stage in the college football playoffs, leading themselves into the actual NFL playoffs. There's so much to take away from this. Uh, just... On how well Clemson played, uh, on how much they outcoached and saving, uh, <laughs> the fact that Alabama was a dog, uh, the favorite in this game, and Clemson just completely dominated. Uh, there's a lot to love, uh, especially when it comes to the future of these two guys. Uh, it's certainly an exciting point. But with that, I think we're getting to the end of our 36 podcast. Uh, so I want to jump into Beard Bat because. You know, usually, I was like, I give you like one, maybe two, but this was tough because there are so many to choose from. I couldn't decide, so I'm gonna give you as many as I can. Um, start from the back, work away. For 1962, golfer Jack Nicklaus, 21 years old, first pro appearance, didn't do so well, but greatest golfer. 1984, the NCAA. Double A announces that the basketball tournament will have 64 teams. Uh, in 
1993, Michael Jordan scores his 20,000th point in his 620th game, second fastest to reach that milestone. We spoke about the Baseball Hall of Fame in our last podcast. Well, in 1995, Hall of Famer Mike Smith was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And then in 96, no one was elected in the Baseball Hall of Fame for the first time in 25 years. It's been a while since we've seen stuff like that. And our last couple, I'll give you. In 2013, Steve Nash records his 10,000th career assist. It's been a while since anyone mentioned Steve Nash. And in 2012, this one I had to throw out there just for the fact that Jose is a Mets fan. Uh, in 2012, the Denver Broncos defeated the Pittsburgh Steelers 29-23 to in overtime with Tim Tebow throwing an 80-yard touchdown pass to Demarius Thomas on the first play of overtime. So I don't know if you remember that play, but Tim Tebow, uh, you know, my favorite part of him being a Denver Bronco had to be the SNL skit of Tim Tebow. I'm not going to say his highlights were my favorite part, just the SNL skit of Tim Tebow was my favorite part of his time with the Denver Broncos. And for our dude of the week, we always have a dude and dunce of the week. Well, it's not really going to be too much of a surprise where I'm going with this one. We just spoke about it, what, a minute or two ago. I'm going with Clemson winning the national championship. But not only Clemson, I'm going with the quarterback. Tell you the numbers. They were phenomenal in this game. Ready for this? 20 for 32, 347 yards, three touchdowns in the game in the 44-216 win is Trevor Lawrence is our dude of the week, picking up his first dude of the week, but somehow I do not think this will be his only dude of the week for future years to come uh, when he finally gets into the NFL and he could even pick up another one in that season during his college years and especially because I certainly think he has the ability to win another title with And hopefully Clemson. this podcast is still kicking, too, when, by the time he makes yeah. the NFL. <laughs> I mean, we'll be much older by the time we get there, but hopefully the podcast is still going. Uh, but certainly he is our dude of the week with a lot of future to come for him. But with the dude of the week, that requires us to have a dunce of the week. And Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Well, I don't think I've ever had this many choices for Dunce of the Week as I've had this week. I mean, there's just been plenty. There's Conor McGregor trying to call out the same guy that Floyd Mayweather fought. There's Drake wearing the Alabama hoodie and then Alabama losing the game, of course. There's also Bears fans for flipping out on Cody Park, uh, uh, Park Parky for missing the field goal. Um, Ravens fans for chanting Joe Flacco. Nick, I've had an incredible week, and I've had a really hard time choosing. This may never happen again. But if I have to choose anybody... I'm going to choose for all the fans voting for the NBA All-Star Game if you didn't see the first round of results came out. And DeMarcus Cousins is very high on the list. Uh, Nick, if you can count with me, how many games has DeMarcus Cousins played so far in 2018-2019? Zero. Zero, yes. Zero games. A strong zero. Yeah, as strong as the number zero on his back. He's played zero games, yet he's in what? Fourth or fifth place for the front court in All-Star Game voting? 
that's just ridiculous. I mean, the guy's not coming back till mid-January. Please take the voting out of the fans' hands. I understand you want to make the fans all-inclusive, but when fans get their hands on voting things, they make mistakes. I mean, have you seen American Idol? Chris Daughtry should have won that season. It's still salty. I love when the fans get their hands on the phone. I know. I, re- I realized that was rhyming, but I couldn't keep it going. So it, it's all good, though. But, I, yeah. So I, fan, NBA fans for voting for DeMarcus Cousins, you're my dunce. Th- this reminds me of when uh, people had to vote for to name the boat. And, and Bodie McBoatface? Yeah, Bodie McBoatface won the, uh, the choice. Um, not only that, wasn't... Uh, Derek Rose is a possible candidate to win. Yes, spot. but Derek Rose deserves it. Oh come on! But it's not really this far. Doesn't? No, no, not so in the West. He doesn't deserve to be in the All Star game. Maybe as a bench player, not a, not starting the All Star game. Oh um, man, we might have to talk about this on the next episode. Dwayne Wade, as well, it was in it. That that one's a head scratcher. But honestly, I'm not going to be mad if he gets in as a reserve. That that to me is too far. Um. I think Jeremy Lin was a consideration yeah, as well. Yeah, I don't. Is he even playing? I don't even. I don't even I, know. <laughs> so uh, there, there's a few that the. Uh, thankfully, it's only I think like 33 percent now, or it's yeah. fi- at most it's 50 percent because the fans and uh, media also did a vote, and they'll knock some sense into that. Yeah, I was very happy to see Luka Doncic. Um, be on the top of that leaderboard, though. I think he's had a fantastic rookie season so far, and he has a very bright future. So there are some bright spots, but... I don't think he'll get in as a starter, though. I think the votes will help him get a chance, but uh, my big issue is Jokic. He's all the way down in the bottom uh, as yeah. far as votes go. So I, I, the media's got to help him out, uh, and the players also have to try and help him out to get him in because he certainly deserves to be there. And maybe, just maybe, this will be the year Damian Lillard finally makes an All-Star game. Doubt it, but maybe. Uh, there's another one that should be above Derrick Rose. Thank you. Forgot about uh, One of the many that should be above him. Pretty much everybody that should be above him. Even the crutches that have carried Derrick Rose through his career. Ah, come on. Now you're just a hater. Should be above him. <laughs> hater. I changed my pick. Dunce of the week next to Rosso. Did I get that last week? <laughs> I know. I think that was two weeks ago or two maybe weeks three ago. weeks ago. Man. I lose track. <laughs> it's quickly becoming me and LeVar Ball for the favorites <laughs> to win Dunce. Hey, LeVar Ball has been on his best behavior. I have not chosen him, I think, so far since we started up our podcast again. Uh, my favorite thing was watching him take three-pointers and missing every one of them in front of a crowd. But he can still beat Jordan one-on-one. Yeah, he still had this amazing triple-double career in college that no one seems to have any tape knowledge or statistics of. It's wonderful. Um, Anyway, with that note, uh, final thoughts for this week. Uh, Jose, give us your final thoughts. Uh, I went 0-4 in wildcard weekend. I'm really confident I can pull off and go 4-0 this week, making my playoff record 4-4. if I'm the New York Giants, I tank for Taylor Lawrence. So, yes, if we have to lose three years in a row just to get Taylor Lawrence, I will sacrifice um, – I will gladly sacrifice that. I will play QB for the Giants if it means tanking for three straight seasons to get Taylor Lawrence. So I'm officially starting to campaign. Tank for Lawrence 2021. Now, come on, Jose. <laughs> if you're going to start, they might win more games than Eli. <laughs> 
Maybe. <laughs> Strong maybe. All right, so my final thoughts. I love the underdog spreads this week. I'm going to be the sucker this week. But the Chargers, with getting four points, I really like them to beat the New England Patriots. I know Jose has the New England Patriots this week, but I like the Patri- uh, I like the Chargers getting the four points. But what I really love is the Colts getting five and a half. Look, even if you consider that the Colts and Chiefs can put up points a ton each, the Colts are a team that have dominated over the last 10 weeks, they should not be this much of an underdog. They were a pick game practically against the Houston Texans, and they were a road game in that one. They should be the same way viewed in this one. The fact that you're going to get five and a half points, the Colts are my favorite bet of the week, and if you can add points, whether it's a teaser or just add it up to from a minus 110 to a minus 150 and getting to that seven and a half range, the Colts seem to be like the best bet in this playoff round. So I really like the uh, Colts. Start off well. Bet on the Colts early on that Saturday. Get the first game up as a positive and then have the rest have fun with the free money that you have behind that. So the Colts are my pick of the safe bet of the week. Uh, been loving them for a while. I think I, I'm all in on them this week as far as the better's guide. Once again, I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And thank you so much for listening to Saras on the Beard podcast, episode 36. Enjoy the divisional round of the playoffs. We will be back next week, of course, to talk more about the NFL playoffs and so much more, as well as the AL West. We're finally getting done with the, uh, the first part of our baseball podcast as we'll get closer into when we do later on with the standings. As always, keep your eye with Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. Who knows where they're going to be signing recently. But again, thank you for listening to Saras on the Beard Podcast, episode 36.